the people you love, play five songs they love and tell you why. Australian director Gracie Otto has been making a name for herself of late. She's been behind the camera for the series Bump and The Other Guy, and a few years ago directed a doco about an eccentric theatre producer called The Last Empresario. You get the feeling that Gracie is drawn to a cracking yarn. And it doesn't get much better than the story of an island studio set up by Sir George Martin in the splashy 80s in the middle of the Caribbean. The Air Studios in Montserrat are the stuff of legend. This was where Paul McCartney headed after the death of John Lennon. It was the place Elton John got his mojo back. And it captured the final and hugely successful album by The Police. To be a fly on the wall during those sessions, right? Gracie got close, and her film, Under the Volcano, captures a magical period in time when Western music melted with Caribbean culture and some incredible memories were made. Gracie is Australian. She comes from a family of actors, but I was curious how this young director found her way to this story all the way over from the British West Indies. My producer, Cody Greenwood, who's amazing, her um, mother, Franela Sapp, who's an artist, lived on the island in the 1970s, just prior to Sir George Martin going down there. And, you know, she would kind of sell all her paintings and met all the artists down there. And a few years ago, she was having a dinner with some of the people who built the studio and Cody was sitting there kind of going, why? These are stories are amazing. Why hasn't anyone made a documentary about it? So then she went and got permission from the Martin estate and, you know, had known some of the people like Andy Summers growing up and actually spent time on the island as a kid. So really, you know, the genesis was 100% from her and she'd already interviewed Sting and kind of put this amazing pitch document together of 70 pages of research of every band that was down there. And then she approached me and was like, do you want to do it? And I was like, yeah. It's pretty incredible when you see the list of people who have recorded there. Sting, as you mentioned, with the police. Every breath you take and every move you make Every bond you break Every step you take I'll be watching Earth, Wind and Fire. Paul McCartney. Ebony and Ivory live together in perfect harmony. Are uh, the Rolling Stones? Duran Duran. Elton John are some of the names that are kicking around. Did it take you a long time to get some of these big names on board and, and willing to talk to you about their time in Montserrat? Yeah, definitely. Cody had already started the outreach before I came on board and, you know, someone like Mark Knopfler took three years to get him over the line and we nearly finished all the interviews when he said yes. And so, yeah, it was definitely, for me, my last documentary had a lot of kind of well-known people that are always, you know, a bit harder to get an interview with sometimes just because, I mean, all the bands that we were talking to, like, you know, Elton's band, the Rolling Stones, and they were all on tour. Mark Knopfler was on tour. You know, it was such a difficult time and we were lucky that we got everyone we did. And then, you know, when we were in post, that's when the pandemic hit and <laughs> it was like game over. So we were so lucky to have been able to travel to Montserrat and 
all around the UK and America, you know, Australia to do all these interviews. Yeah, well, I want to talk about some of those travels as we explore those stories. Gracie Otto is going to take five with Island Songs, very fittingly, some of the stories from this amazing place. And you are going to take us literally right there with the first pick. It's a big soaker hit by Arrow. Hot, hot, hot. As soon as everyone hears that, they're going to remember this song. Tell us about this choice. Why are you kicking off with this song from Arrow? I felt like this really captures the island. It was the biggest hit that, that ever came out of there, as opposed to like reggae in Jamaica and places, you know, um, in Montserrat, the kind of style of music that was really popular was soca. Um, and when we were putting the film together, we were trying to work out how to, you know, tell Sir George Martin's story very briefly, get people to the island. And at the start of the film, we were like, one way to take you straight back in time is hot, hot, hot. And, you know, Arrow sadly has passed away, but his brother, Hero, um, is interviewed in the film. It's an amazing song to take you right back to that time and place. But obviously, like, Montserrat is pretty much one of the furthest places you can be from Australia. Did you know much of the music scene before you went there? Like, how much did you understand about the scene as you were making this film that that lived there before all these Western musicians came on board? I honestly knew absolutely nothing. Like, I had to do a big, um, you know, deep dive on Google. And I think, you know, Cody's mum, Frenet, had always talked about, you know, how incredible the island was because it was... You couldn't have big cruise ships there. It was so remote. They had these beautiful black sand beaches and these beautiful kind of cliff faces. Um, and it's incredible because two thirds of the island, you know, or third of the is taken over by the volcano that erupted. So there's beautiful lush green trees and tiny colorful homes. And then the rest of the place is completely gone. Like kind of, I say like, you know, it's like the Pompeii of the Caribbean. Mm. next song is Grace Jones' Slave to the Rhythm. Why did you choose this one from Grace? I chose Grace Jones. This song actually wasn't recorded on the island. You know, one of the things that in the film is that there, there really weren't a lot of women who went down to record music down at the time. Annie Lennox was down there with her band The Tourists and Sheena Easton went down, but the majority were men. And I guess when I was looking for music, when we were just traveling, traveling around mainly, there's that great app called Radio with all the O's at the end. And, um, you know, you can just hit on an island or hit on a country in a decade. And I kind of just wanted to see, like, what was going on in music at that time around Montserrat, but not particularly on Montserrat. And um, the studio existed from 79 to 89. Um, Grace Jones obviously was recording uh, not on Montserrat, but in 1984-85. And so I just felt like it was a yeah great song of the times to kind of showcase also the women that were doing amazing music. Yeah, and Grace Jones, obviously a huge icon, but also the sound of that song and really of all of this music is um, one that for you know the right reasons, the 80s is really hailed as this golden era of recording. There was a lot of money thrown at 
uh, recording albums. It was, by many people's standards now, seen as a period of, of great excess. When you were digging into these stories and seeing the amount of time that was spent and the amount of money that was spent on, on albums, did it kind of make your head spin? Particularly as a creative making films, I'm sure, in this day and age, there's not a lot of money for any kind of creativity these days. Yeah, totally. I mean, it was such a period of excess and people would, you know, go down there like Mark Knopfler um, says, you know, the Dire Straits, they went down there for a month before they even started recording anything, but then they recorded the album in three days. So it was kind of like that luxury of taking everything in from the island and enjoying time together with the band and then, you know, laying down an album. But, you know, times changed and that was that period of music recording and, you know, would have been great to be around back then down on the island. Look at them yo-yos, that's the way you do it. You play the guitar on the MTV. That ain't working. Tell us about the space of, of this island and particularly of the studio, the air studio in, in Montserrat. You've been there. Can you explain what it looks like? And also looking at the archives of what it looked like before it was destroyed by the hurricane? Yeah, I mean, one of the signature kind of parts of the house is the pool. It had this incredible pool with like a slippery dip that overlooked um, the water. And it was this kind of big two-storey house. And I guess the difference between something like Air Studios London that Sir George set up was that Montserrat was um, just one studio. So really you went there just kind of with one band. And a lot of the people in the film were locals who lived on the island and worked at the studio. And they kind of formed a lot of the story because they, um, you know, they were there every day with the band. They had, they did, some of them did backing tracks for the police. You know, we met this incredible guy, George Morgan, who was the chef for 10 years. And like every famous artist talked about how incredible his food was and, to, you know, to put on spreads like that every night for those kind of people and all their entourage would have been like such a mammoth job. How did the locals take all that in? Did they, Was there any kind of starstruck reaction when these big recording artists came, came around or were they just visitors to their place? Yeah, not at all. Like Rose Willock, who was actually Miss Montserrat um, and she is the local radio host down there and we interviewed her and she said, you know, which is true that like anyone who was a musician, they were like, you hear them on the radio all the time. It wasn't a big deal if you're a cricket player or something else people would be, be wanting your autograph. So I think, you know, there's a great story how like there was this place they kind of called the Chicken Shack that was this kind of, you know, little takeaway place. And Elton John one day was asking his band where they'd been. And he was like, oh, I love places like that. And they were like, mate, you live at the Ritz. Like, as if you're going to love this. And he would go down there every night. And, they, you know, and the guys who worked at the studio said when he went down there, it was an open bar. The tab was just open and anyone could come and eat and drink. And, you know, they would just, yeah hang out to all hours in the morning. So they really, you know, were such, Paul McCartney also went down there after John Lennon had passed away as a kind of, you know, place of refuge. And for him to be there at that moment in history with no kind of paparazzi hunting him um, and able to enjoy time with his family and record an album was, yeah, a testament to how special the, you know, the people who live on the island are down there. But one of the biggest records to be made there, Gracie, was of course Brothers in Arms by Dire Straits. And I have to thank you for choosing this because this record is the sound of my childhood. Dad bloody loved Dire Straits. And I think if you were a child of the 80s, then your dad probably did as well. Um, <laughs> you've chosen the epic ride across the river from this amazing album. Right across the river to the other side, yeah. Tell us about the Dire Straits experience and I guess given that it took you three years to nail down Mark Knopfler, what it was like when he finally agreed to to tell his stories. 
Well, you know, the Dire Straits, they recorded Brothers in Arms, which was the first digital, digital recordings. That was a huge shift in the way people were recording music. And for me, you know, we interviewed Neil Dorsman, who was a record producer, and I just found that interview with him fascinating. And yeah, Mark Knopfler. I mean, the scary thing about when we interviewed Mark Knopfler was that after we finished the interview, we went back to the hotel to put the card um, into the hard drive and it just wasn't there and the whole interview wasn't there and that's never happened in my career. Oh my God. Oh, it's just that a camera card one day decides that it's just had enough. We'd hired it from, you know, a TV studio in the UK and someone was like, you just got to put it in a freezer because it's overheated. And I was like, I don't think you understand. This is a one and a half hour interview with Martin Offler. So it sat, we sent it to Hong Kong and it sat in a freezer for a few weeks until they could extract the interview out minute by minute. So that was like... <laughs> That was really scary. So, but you know, when we got to inter- when I got to interview Martin Offler, yeah, it was kind of like the icing on the cake because a lot of the people in our team, we're a very small team that made the film, were really obsessed with Martin Offler. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then when I interviewed him, I was like, oh yeah, he's pretty great. Like, <laughs> <laughs> why this song in particular of all the songs? Like, this isn't necessarily a radio hit from from the record. Yeah. Why did you choose this one? I chose this one because. I thought it was such a great song. I actually didn't know that much about the Dire Straits. I wasn't like a super fan. And I remember my producer, Cody, coming into the edit one day and being like, mate, why is this film, why is this song in the film? And I was like, oh, it's so good. And also Neil Dorsman had talked about in the interview, for me, when I first went down there, the sounds of the island was just like sounds I'd never heard before. And he went up um, and climbed the volcano at night and recorded all the sounds that is in this song right across the river. But yeah, Cody's dad, um, who's a musician, was like, yeah, it definitely wasn't one of their biggest tracks. Um, so it got cut from the film, but it was always a song I particularly really loved. Right become a wrong, the left become the right. And they sing as they march with their flags unfurled. Today in the mountains, tomorrow the world. Gonna ride across the river. This next choice is Stevie Wonder, I Just Called to Say I Love You. I just called to say I love you. I just called to say how much I care. When was Stevie in Montserrat? What sort of era was he recording there? Stevie was there early. He was there in 1981. Paul McCartney um, was doing an album, um, Tug of War, and he recorded um, with uh, Stevie Wonder, Ebony and Ivory down there. And for me, um, I guess the best part of the whole Stevie Wonder story is that Cody's dad one day was like, I think I've got a recording that Stevie Wonder did when he was jamming one night in a local bar in Montserrat um, with Paul McCartney. And he found it in his attic in Perth. And (laughs) It's actually, and I would have loved to play it on this, but I don't think I've got the rights, but it's an incredible one hour set where he riffs all these greatest hits and actually sings to the people of Montserrat and says how special people are, you know, his mate Paul McCartney is. And I think also all the photographs in the film, um, seeing Stevie without, you know, his iconic sunglasses on, it was just, you know, and Paul McCartney's there in some, you know, Haviana thongs and like green <laughs> pants. And it was such a special time. It was obviously such a, you know, hard time for Paul. Um, and it was kind of, you know, him and, so George Martin decided to work together and do this album and it was really his comeback 10 years after he broke up with the Beatles. So Stevie Wonder, I guess this, yeah. The song I just called to say I love you is also because I listened, this song wasn't recorded down there, but I listened to it on the plane going over to interview Mark Knopfler about 60 times on repeat. And then when I was interviewing Mark Knopfler, he said, 
uh, George Tappy Morgan, who was the chef, would just always listen to Stevie Wonder. I just called to say I love you. And I felt like Mark and I had this like connection in the interview. And I was like, I've just, I've just listened to that 60 times on the plane. And, it's <laughs> and he's like, you're crazy. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that was the choice behind that. The Stevie story really spoke to me because it sounds like he really embraced island life and, and, you know, obviously wanted to get out and play. Nothing beats playing to a room of people. It's much more, you know, a different energy to playing in a studio. But was that a common experience for many of these artists or were they hanging poolside and staying closer to the studio? Like how much did they involve themselves in the actual island community of Montserrat? Uh, most of them did. I mean, the police kind of were like, mm, no, I don't think we did. Um, but, I, you know, I'd read stories about the Rolling Stones going down to bars. And, I mean, yeah, Stevie Wonder called the place the Agouti. That's kind of like the national animal um, in Montserrat. And um, this bar and said, you know, they said, oh, is the piano on? And they said, oh, we're packing up for the night. And the guy was like, hey, better not pack up. Stevie Wonder's coming down. And the whole island came down and listened to that recording. So, Pretty incredible. Yeah. I wish I was there, frankly. And watching this film, it just feels like it's not just a music documentary, but it's a travel film. You know, you're wandering through these beautiful landscapes. Volcanic islands are always so lush. For you, when you first went there, it was obviously in a state post the eruption uh, that happened in the 90s and the studio itself had been ravaged by a volcano a few years prior to that. What sort of state was the studio in and was it easy to get access to it? We got special access to it with the police um, because of the Sir George Martin's estate. No one's been in there. And the interesting thing about the studio is it lies just on the border of the exclusion zone, which shifts in time. I'm not sure why, but it does. So sometimes the studio had, you know, been left there because it was in the exclusion zone and now it's just out of that zone by like a few metres. And then, you know, there was all this amazing footage shot down there by a local guy, um, when the volcano erupted and there was, you know, an iconic place called the clock tower, which was like where everyone kind of gathered to meet in the, in the local town, um, in the capital of Plymouth. And that whole clock tower has over time been covered up. So when we went out there, I was really scared. I was waiting for Cody to say, Oh, this is too dangerous. Cause the police were like, all right, you're going to park your cars and face outward. So if the volcano erupts, you'll be able to drive out. And once I heard that, I was like, why, why are we out here again? That's like, an active volcano. Yeah, and it was just interesting to see some of the homes that people had just kind of run out and left because they weren't sure if they could ever go back. And a lot of the people we met on the island hadn't actually even been back there. So I had a bit of an eerie feeling going there, like, you know, that we obviously were so privileged that we could go there and, and shoot the place. And, I mean, it's amazingly cinematic. But just to see, yeah, a natural disaster and, and, and to see the size of the island and what something like that, how that affects, you know, it displaced, you know, nearly every person on the island and the population is significantly um, smaller than it was back in the time. Yeah, it's a story that's worth reading up on. Like I said, it's so far away from Australia, but, you know, that whole area and the the, the volcanic movement of that space um, makes it, it's, it's always, literally always changing, but there's been a lot of tragedies there. And, and right before all of this happened, there was a little studio called Air Studios in Montserrat. Uh, Sir George Martin built it there. He built it as an escape that a lot of people from particularly the UK, um, but also America, went in to escape and create music. For the locals there, as you spoke to them, and many of them feature in, in this documentary as well, Gracie, did the experience of Montserrat leave a lasting effect on, on the island? What was their take on it all these years later? Yeah, it was a real synergy between, you know, the studio and, and the people of Montserrat. George Martin actually had, if anyone has time to go on YouTube and check out the most incredible concert where you see Eric Clapton, 
uh, Elton John, Sting, Mark Knopfler, all on stage at the same time with Paul McCartney. I think they they did this huge concert um, to raise money for the people of Montserrat. Montserrat has been part of my life for the past 20 years, and I've become very fond of that little island and its people. And the eruption of the volcano after 400 years of sleep cruelly threatened the very existence of the island. And for well over two years now, many of its people have been living in dreadful conditions. And so George Martin actually built um, like a, a hall where they do lots of concerts and local activities there and raise money for the people after. So I think, you know, Sting was someone who just was so profoundly kind of sad about what had happened there. A lot of them, you know, couldn't even look at the photos in interviews when I, I showed them that we'd been down there. So I, I think for a lot of people, it was such a special place um, and the people there were just so important to them. And Jimmy Buffett emailed us the other day being like, hey, I'm on tour and I'm going to Boston. So the chef, where is he? I want to have dinner with him. And, you know, we heard a story from De uh, Desmond Riley, the bartender, how he ran into Keith Richards on the streets in New York one day. And he was like, oh, come out to my place in Connecticut. So I think, you know, it was amazing all the friendships that were formed down there. It's an incredible capture in time, an amazing period for music. Like I said, expensive sounding music, um, lush 80s sounds. And Elton John was one of the artists who I guess got his mojo back at the Air Studios in Montserrat as well. He recorded three albums there. This is a perfect song to finish too. It's called I'm Still Standing. You can never know what it's like. Your blood like when a freeze is just like ice. And there's a cold and lonely light that shines from you. You wind up like the wreck you hide behind that mask you use. Why did you choose it, Gracie? Oh, I felt like this whole film, it was by the end, we were still standing. We were so happy. I love this um, song because we'd heard rumours about how this song came about and Chris Thomas, who was a record producer, kind of confirmed that, um, you know, they'd all had a big party one night, Elton was upset and, you know, everyone was kind of stoned and this guy just kind of stood out in, you know, the cloud of smoke and said, hey, I'm still standing. And he was like, quick, Bernie, let's write the song. And I think... You know, it's one of my favourite songs um, of Elton's, it always was. And, you know, just hearing and listening about the process of how how fast they recorded and how quickly they wrote songs, I felt was incredible. And I just feel like it's a good pump-up song. I'm still standing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once I never could have hoped to win You're starting down the road and leaving me again The threats you made were meant to cut me down And if my love was just a circus be a clown by now. A big hit captured in Montserrat at George Martin's Air Studios and shared by director Gracie Otto in her Take 5. If you're keen to see more, the doco Under the Volcano is out digitally everywhere right now. Next time, we're going to head to another studio, but with a muso who's making some wild sounds in 2021. Matthew E. White is one of those guys who gives everything a go. He's a jazz player, a producer, a big collaborator, and he runs Space Bomb, a label and studio that brings together all kinds of music, regardless of genre. And Matthew's a musician who, on the day he releases his new record, will join you to take five. Matthew E. White's music knows no boundaries and he'll give you the full spectrum across five songs next time. Take Five! The Take Five with Zan Rowe. Every week, hear the people you love. Hi, I'm Joan Jett. Hey, this is Nana Cherry. And I'm Taking Five. Talk about the five songs they love. Five.
hear stories of discovery. And I heard this thing coming out of the speakers. I was like, oh, my God, what is that noise? Wow. And the songs that changed how they saw the world. It just affected me deeply. I never knew rap could be that powerful. Join Zan Rowe and Take 5. Life 101 with Kimber and Zan. Pull up a chair. (laughs) Subscribe now.